Okay, um, if you have like a Bible or I think they're around here somewhere, you may want to uh, grab them. Uh, we will be looking at different places. Uh, but as we start off, uh, what do you want first, good news or bad news? Bad news. Everybody bad news? No good news people in here first? Uh, scientifically speaking, that is actually the correct answer. Studies have shown that people respond better, which you probably you might already know. People respond better when you get the, uh, the bad news out of the way first, and then, uh, then you give them the good news. This doesn't relate to much of what I have to say tonight, but it got your attention for a moment, which is what an introduction is all about, right? So here we are. Um, I want to begin tonight with the boring piece. There's always a boring piece in every sermon. Like it's just, it's just a fact. We have to do it. And so I want to get that out of the way. We're just going to do the boring part first, and then we can get to the interesting parts with the serpents and the sex and the sin, okay? All right. So <clears throat> uh, the, the boring part of this is governed by a question, and that question being, how did you get the Bible that's in your hands? You know, we, we have these things. We call it scripture. Um, we talk about inspiration. Uh, how, did it, how did it come about? How did it make its way um, to, to us? And to get into that, that question of discussion, I want to look at two little places, the first being Genesis 1, and then the second being Genesis 2, verse 4. So if you feel like following along, um, find that spot. If not, you can just listen to what, I, what I'm reading here. So <clears throat> Genesis 1, 1 begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was hovering over the face of the deep. Again, these deep waters. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. Day, morning, evening, the next day. And then it, as, you, as you know, it cascades on where we have a very <coughs> orderly, um, if but poetic, description of how God uh, makes, makes everything. If you flip your page, well, for me anyway, if you flip a page, you go to Genesis 2, verse 4, we have another text that opens up, and it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day or on the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no person, no man. That word man is, uh, is actually Adam in Greek or in Hebrew. It means the same thing. It's just human being, uh, male human being. There's no human to work the ground, and there's a mist uh, over the land watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, as you listen to those stories, what I hope you caught, there's a couple things that you should have caught. The first being that it seems very obvious that we have two very distinct creation narrations. The first one has a seven-day creation process that culminates in the creation of human beings. This, as we open up to the next chapter, this next section, we have a reset now God creates things in one day. There is a planet that's already been made. There's no, there's no plants. There's, there's just kind of the ground and this mist that lays over it. Then God swoops in, creates man, and then, and then begins to build a garden, which is different than the creation story we just had. So you have two different creation stories. What do we do with that? 
I hope you noticed another thing. This might have been a little bit more uh, difficult to notice, especially if you weren't looking at the text. But if you read very carefully, there is two separate names for God that are used. In the first chapter, in chapter 1, the name for God used exclusively is Elohim. Uh, that is built off of a word, El, that's the root word. Uh, and that is a word very common in the ancient Near East, the time that these things are happening, for the God of the mountain. Right? So they're, you're, they're using a word, a very generic, like we use the word God, you might be hanging out with, with anyone um, of, a, of a religion or no religion at all, and you say the word God, and everyone kind of has, they know what we mean by that word, it's a common word. The same thing is true of Elohim in chapter 1. Well, if we go forward to chapter 2, and you see that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, that word Lord, as many of you may know, some of you might not, so I'm just going to talk about it for a second, but that word Lord is all in caps, and it's all in caps because later on, much later, if we fast forward a, a few thousand years, you get to Moses. Moses is, a, is facing the burning bush. You remember that story, Moses and the burning bush? And, and Moses, God is trying to get Moses to go to Egypt and to free his people. And Moses says, like, that's really stupid. Egypt's like the most strongest military power in the world. They're not going to let their, their slave force go. And so he's, he's coming up with all these excuses. And one of the excuses that Moses makes is this. We don't even know your name. Which is to say then, through the times of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the years, the hundreds of years until we got to Moses, there was no name, as it were, for God. And Moses says, well, what is your name? And God says, it's Yahweh, or Jehovah, maybe you've heard that, it's a poor translation, but Yahweh is a poor the appropriate word, Yahweh. It was such a sacred word, though, that they wouldn't write it in the text. It is in Hebrew, but when it's moved into English or into Greek or into any of the other languages, they just capitalize it. So we have a very distinct use of the name God here in the second chapter. And so if you know anything about like trying to figure out who wrote what and where, as ancient you know, as scholars are trying to do, they notice things. How did somebody write? What words did they use? How, how, how does their structure flow? If you got a letter from, people don't write letters anymore, I guess. It's not even a thing, is it? I used to get letters from my grandma. In fact, up to um, maybe about 10 years ago, we would write letters back and forth to each other. Um, it's just a thing we did. I was down in Tennessee, and we would write back and forth. She would always send, sign the letter or, or address the letters to N-O-G, N.O.G. Number one grandson, and we would send letters back and forth. And I knew when I got a letter from grandma because I immediately could see her handwriting. When I get a letter from my Aunt Barb, we get Christmas cards from my Aunt Barb. She has the most immaculate penmanship I've ever, I've ever seen. Is there, you, you see something from someone, anybody in your life, and you're like, they, I know who wrote that. If I wrote it, it looks like, you know, so you know, you know that I wrote it. And it's the same thing as we're trying to figure out who wrote ancient documents. We pay attention to the words they use. And so when I was growing up and asking the question or thinking about the question, where did this book come from? How did I get these two creation accounts and all of the other things in here? Where did it come from? I had in my mind that Moses was sitting somewhere with a pen and a paper and God was just whispering in his ear and he's writing down, because obviously Moses isn't, whoever wrote this down, they're not present for Adam and Eve. They're not present for the creation of the world. Somebody is writing this long after, after that event. And so... Where, where does this story come from? How does it get here to us? Is it this idea of, Mo, of Moses writing down somewhere and God speaking in his ear? 
Well, that's hopefully visible to you with just this little bit of time that we spent with these two stories, that that is manifestly false. We have different ways of writing. We have different ways of telling the story. We have two separate timetables. One has seven days. One has one day. One has humans made at the end of the story. One has them made at the beginning of the story. It is very different. So what is happening here? What is happening here as, and I need to stress this, Virtually all scholars agree something like this happened. And that is that over the many, many years as Israel, as a people, are developing, they are sharing oral traditions. Some things got written down, absolutely. But when they wrote, they didn't have long you know, pieces of paper. They didn't have scrolls. They're writing on clay tablets. And that's what they are passing on, right? Stone, clay, some papyrus, these things uh, are, are what we have. And so as these oral traditions emerge, they emerge around schools uh, within Israel. You read in your Bibles about the schools of the prophets. You'll read in the New Testament about the scribes the Pharisees, and the experts in the law. You'll read in, in, the, in the time of, of David of the temple being built, or Solomon, the temple being built, and scholars coming in and collating and bringing things together. And so what happened is these stories, which were orally talked about and passed on and held in different places, are finally, probably in the post-exilic period, brought together into one cohesive unit. It is called the Documentary Hypothesis. That is how this book came to come to. This is how this book came together, especially the first five books of the Old Testament: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you pay very close attention to Genesis one and its ordered nature, you will see the handmark of those who wrote Leviticus. And if you pay attention very clearly to the the, the Lord God that you have here in Genesis two, it, it clearly is referring to a later time, as we see in the book of Deuteronomy. And these things are brought together by later what we call, this is a fancy technical term, but redactors, editors, people who brought these texts together. So that is, that, that's kind of one of those things I wanted to talk about. And, and the reason that I bring this up is to point out that we have had some misrepresentations about what the Bible is as a document. And those misrepresentations have put loads on our backs that we shouldn't have had to carry. They put us in fear of the future, in fear of science, in fear of the other. It's been utilized in many ways as we talk about the serpent and Satan, been utilized to talk about hell and guilt. All of these ways that we look at the Bible are frequently um, just confusing the, this, this, this theme that I want to talk about now, and that is the confusing genre and meaning. So there are two things that are, I want to talk about, genre and meaning. What, what is the genre of what is happening here? So we talked about how the Bible is using these different, uh, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how the Bible is utilizing um, the stories of their day. And we can see that here. We have a genre that is going on in Genesis chapter 2. God reaches in and he makes humans out of what? Dust. Dirt, mud, he, he, he forms them and breathes into them the breath of life. Do you know that in 32 BC, so long before this, 
the Sumerian culture, the oldest culture that we have outside of the, the pieces of, of Egypt, the Sumerian culture also had a story. Their story was that Enki stepped into the world, and he also made humans out of mud. And those humans were created for one distinct purpose, and that is to tend the world so that they could feed the gods. The gods come down and they eat food, and that's, you, you've seen those, right? The, 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 the altars and, and food stacked up on it. That's, that's what they, they believed. The Enki would come down and, and he is going to eat. So he makes humans out of dust. After the Sumerians, the Akkadians come along, and they have an epic origin story, and their epic origin story is called Enuma Elish. And in Enuma Elish, the exact same thing happens. The, 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 the queen god is killed, and the, the creator god takes the blood of the queen, mixes it with the mud of the earth, and creates humans. Again, for the express purpose of servitude. Humans are slaves to the gods. So this is the story that, that all of the people around are talking about, much like we talked about last week. They're, they're telling stories about how humans were created and what, why, why are we here? What are we doing here? What's our purpose in life? What are we about? And their answer to that story was, well, the gods made us. They made us out of dirt, and they made us to tend the, the world, to, to, to make sure that agriculture is happening and things are moving and things are good, to tend it as slaves. But in this story, God steps in, and he does something quite a bit different. He breathes his breath. Right, which goes very well with some of the things we did earlier. This, this breath of life. That word is nefesh, which is also the same word we use for soul. Right? God, you might say, gives a piece of his soul, his breath to us, and we become living beings. So there's a thematic genre at work here. Do you see that? There's the mud, there's the gods creating humans, but there is something very different in the way the Israelites are telling their story. They're telling their story not about capricious gods who are looking to make slaves. There is a God who, who has made things and he's looking across it and he says it's not quite complete and he brings it up and he gives it his breath or gives it his image, the Imago Dei. He gives it something that makes it clear that it's special. In fact, we're going to read later that God strolls through the garden, walking in the cool of the day, calling out, where are you, Adam and Eve? I'm on my morning walk. You know, I thought you might come, you might say hi. This is very different than the way that the other cultures talked about their gods, even though the genre is very, very similar. As we move forward into Genesis 3, because I do, I know Rod wanted me to talk about Genesis 3 in here. I've been droning out about 1 and 2. So let's look at Genesis 3. This is a very familiar story to probably many of us, the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent. And I'm going to read a little bit of that. And then we'll talk about that as well. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. What did you just hear? Lord God, which connects it, which tells us what? We're dealing with the same author from chapter 2, right? We're using the same word. So this is, again, one, we're, we're dealing with the same author here. So the, the Lord God uh, had, had made... So he, that is the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree of the garden? The woman says to the serpent, no, we may eat of the tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree in the midst or in the center of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. God knows that your eyes are going to be open and you're going to know good from evil. And so the woman sees that the fruit is good for eye, for, to her, to pleasing to the eye, and she tastes it, good for taste. She gives it to Adam. Adam tastes it. And they all of a sudden realize what? Does anybody remember the story? What do they recognize? They're naked, right? We got some kids in this room. I will never forget the day that I, 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 I opened the door on, on my oldest daughter, and she screamed at me to get out. <laughs> Right? Get out! <laughs> because there comes a moment. My littlest, who, our littlest, who's six, she still runs around. She'll come. She, she just loves to be naked. So she'll come home. She'll be like, can I take my... We'll, we'll have guests in the house. She'll be like, can I get naked now? I'll be like, no. There's people in the house. you got to wait. And so she's like, okay. So the, when the people finally leave, she's like, oh, yes! And she's like, she just strips all her clothes off. She's free in that sense. Right? She has not come to the moment of shame where we would all be like, well, you know, are the windows... Clothes, you like make sure that we're we're very aware of that. And the, the Bible is talking about something we we experience with our children. We experience as humans. It's a very human story here that all of us have gone through, where we suddenly know good from evil, and we suddenly recognize we're naked, intellectually, physically, whatever it is. You're suddenly like, oh man, I feel the death in me. I feel the loss of innocence. I feel that I'm different in the world. I feel whatever it is. I think this story is so beautiful in that it really pulls forward that experience that is just so incredibly human and it wraps it in this mythic language that we can all kind of get around and, 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 uh, and find interesting. Who is the serpent? Who is the serpent? Is it? <laughs> What's it say? What's it say? It says that God made animals, and one of them was a serpent, and this serpent was smart. This serpent could talk. Is the craftiest of the, of the serpents, I guess, or the animals. Nothing in this text should lead us to think there's anything like supernaturally dark, like a boogeyman behind this character. The only thing that sits here is that the, the serpent was the crafty one. And did the serpent lie? In fact, the serpent was pretty darn forthright. God knows you're not going to die as soon as you taste it, but he does know you're going to suddenly know what it's like to do something wrong, and, and that's going to change your mind. It's going to change you. And the serpent's right. Uh, this is also a feature of ancient Near Eastern genres. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which predates, uh, that was an Akkadian, um, an Akkadian uh, writing uh, that's probably somewhere around 1,000 years before this. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh tells a story of Gilgamesh, who is uh, an epic king, a mighty warrior, and it is about his, it, it's very much about him learning he's naked and coming to grips with that. The whole story is, is all his sort of, it's just him being a macho man all the way through. And he's got a friend with him, and he finally comes to a point where he actually gets his friend in a situation where his friend is mortally wounded. And so Gilgamesh is, is, is finally, he's, 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 caught, he's, he's caught up to himself, and he's realized his decisions impact the lives of people he cares about. And so he goes on a quest for eternal life. And he finds in a garden a plant, and that plant gives eternal life. 
He realizes this and he celebrates it. He actually tells another friend of his who's with him. He says, not only am I going to take this, but I'm going to bring this back to my friend who's mortally wounded. And I'm going to save his life. I'm going to bring us life. I'm going to save us. And before he, 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 he is able to grab, the, you know, take that back, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's cool. He's been on a long journey. There's a pool of water right there. He goes to jump in and he jumps in. And wouldn't you know it, the moment he does, a, a crafty serpent leaps out of the water takes his bush of life and runs away with it, never to be seen again. And Gilgamesh has to come to grips with the fact that we die, that we lose family, that we will lose ourselves, and we have to figure out a way to deal with that death. We have to come to grips with it. Again, what we see in in the Bible is very similar to the way that they were thinking, the genre of that ancient world. It's told in a very different way. It's a very different kind of story. And yet it is within within that same genre. Uh, Very similarly, uh, serpents were often seen to be not negative uh, in the ancient world, but rather protectors. You'll remember maybe with me that at the end of this Genesis 3 story, and they're denied entrance anymore to the tree of life. What does God put up to protect the tree of life? Does anybody remember? He sets a a cherubim in front of it. Sometimes you'll think of that as an angel. A cherubim is not an angel. A cherubim is a fearsome composite creature with a head sometimes of a face, sometimes of an animal, usually front paws of a lion, something that's very fearsome that will tear your skin, the body of a snake, sometimes wings, sometimes goat feet, all kinds of craziness. You'll see this. If you want a good picture of it, go to Ezekiel. You'll see a really great description of these cherubim. They are fearsome creatures, and they are a feature of ancient Near Eastern architecture, literature, writing, and genre. And so over the gates of Akkad, Akkadian Akkad, where uh, uh, Epic of Gilgamesh was written, above the gates of Akkad, there were two great serpents that were, were facing. And they were not seen as villains. They were seen as protectors. They were seen as wise, uh, those kinds of things. And so the, the idea that the serpent feature is, is very alive in the genre of the ancient Near Eastern work, which I think should point to us, point us to something. And that is, I am not saying that this serpent is not the devil or Satan. I am saying there is no biblical reason to believe that it is. There is no text in the Bible that connects this serpent to, uh, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking, and he's talking about Eve, who is deceived by the serpent. And in that text, he never once connects that serpent to Satan either. That's actually something that came much later, a much as a big part of the Christian, um, the, the Christian in the 5th to 7th century, then the writings of Milton and blah, blah, blah. Um, they've come into our mind as, as this great boogeyman who's kind of back there tempting and making us fall, all these sorts of things. This is, this is a feature of the genre. This is a feature of the genre. And so what do we have here? We have a genre that is speaking to its time, a genre, a way of writing for the people at the time, and it is also how they are making meaning of the world. It's how everyone is making meaning of the world. They're asking, where do humans come from? What are we about? Why are we here? What do we do with all of this? And so I think of this much like science fiction. I, am a, I like science fiction a lot. 
Um, uh, one of the most famous science fiction, early science fiction movies is The Day the Earth Stood Still. Anybody ever see that movie? The Day, all black and white, the aliens come down and they have the, the, tin, the kind of very tin man looking thing come out from the spaceship and he threatens to destroy the world. It, it, it seems like it's a movie about aliens threatening to destroy the world, but it's not. It, it's a commentary on the nuclear crisis. It's all about the nuclear crisis. They remade the movie a few years later with Keanu Reeves because he's such a fantastic actor. They had to make it better. <laughs> and, uh, so they remade it. The aliens show up and they threaten to destroy the world again. But it isn't really about the aliens destroying the world. It's about the the ecological crisis. The reason the aliens have shown up is because we're destroying this pristine planet and we need to stop you know, polluting it. It, it. It's a morality tale. How many of you ever saw The Twilight Zone? Anybody ever seen The Twilight Zone? Thank God, right? That's, that's near scripture. Twilight Zone is beautiful. And, and, and not a single Twilight Zone episode wasn't a sermon, right? It was always a sermon. It was about, it was about something more than just time travel. It was about life in some real way. We understand that. We do that all the time. How many of you have ever heard a song and, and said to yourself, that was for me? Or felt it? You're singing that song and, 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 it, and it's for you. In fact, I've, I've, I've listened to songs and I've sung songs and I felt like they were so meaningful to me, speaking to me in the moment. And then I paid attention to the words and I was like, oh, that wasn't about it all what I thought. I totally misunderstood what was going on in that song. Anybody ever do that before? You're belting it out. You're not really sure the lyrics. You kind of make it up. But it was for me. They know my heartache. The breakup is exactly what I felt. We do this all the time. Um, John Perkins, actually, was one of the first things that Rod and I did together. We saw John Perkins, the very famous uh, civil rights leader who was speaking here at the bridge. And he, he kept saying, we're sin-making machines. We, make, we, we constantly make sin. And in some ways, he's right. We constantly are breaking things, aren't we? We constantly are sort of trying to fighting with ourselves and with each other. But I think more than that, we are meaning-making machines. Every single person I have ever met is trying to find meaning in life, something that matters. And so we do that with stories, we do that with songs, and we do that with the fact that we do believe in sense that there's something bigger at work, something bigger that is calling us to be something bigger, to participate in something bigger. And I think the Bible is after that same question. But one of the things that we have done in the modern world is we have belabored it with some false presuppositions. Presuppositions. As though we are coming to this text as though we are coming to an autobiography about Abraham Lincoln and Moses is just writing all the dates down and making sure he fact checks it with the footnotes. It is not. This is a genre of writing that is using the language of the world around them so that they can make sense of their time and say something meaningful about who God is in contradiction to the people around them who are saying, God doesn't care about you. You are just his mud slave. No, God cares about you. He breathed the breath of life into you. He made you out of his image. He made sure that, that you were taken care of and placed in the garden and all these different things. It is a very different kind of story than the Epic of Gilgamesh or Enuma Elish. But... They are breathing the same air, much like you and I are breathing the same air. I, don't, I, I, won't, I won't talk about you know, Christian romances and other ways in which we find ways to use genres, because we do that as Christians, too. We, we take genres, and we, and we write stories, and we make meaning out of those stories. Um, so anyway, uh, I think this does a few things. As we understand, if we understand um, 
these sections of scripture in this way, I think it does a couple of things. The first things I th think it does is it loosens our stiff bones. We don't have enough fun with the Bible. The Bible is amazing. Are you telling, we just read a story about a snake that tricked everybody. Like, what a great story. <laughs> we read stories about, about God making the world and he makes light and dark and there's no sun or stars. There's no, there's no access to light or dark. What is this? I mean, this, these stories are, are crazy. They're, they're wild. They're an invitation to think crazy, wild thoughts, to imagine God in crazy, wild ways, to participate in the world around us as they are telling stories, but to make sure that when we talk about the things that they talk about, we're doing it from a perspective that recognizes, as Christians anyway, right, recognizes that at the core of it is the call of Jesus to take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan, for that is what true religion is. So it loosens us up. It helps us make sure that we don't mix up the genre and the meaning. Because if we're busy spending time arguing about whether or not it happened in seven days or six billion years or one day or whatever it is, we are busy fighting the wrong kind of battle while the poor and the hungry. We're in here having a Bible study about whether or not evolution is true when we have people that need homes, right? This is the difference. And if we don't let ourselves get caught up in the, that kind of apologetical minutia, we recognize that, of course, they were reading and thinking and being people in their day, just like you and I. We are going to be. I'm getting old and I notice generational differences more now than I ever did. Them kids, dude, I don't know. And I know that y'all, some of you are thinking that about me. Uh, because I've been told that by people, lo, these many years. I don't know about you. Like, there is a generate. You are a part of something, a culture, a place, a people. You have a language. You, you, have a you have all these things, and they make you who you are. You can't shed that like skin. It's a part of who you are, just like it was for them. They are living and breathing their day, and they are saying something meaningful and specific in the genre and language of their day. And we should, too. We should, too. But we shouldn't do it by trying to force the Bible to be something it's not. Because we will eventually, and this is, I, I, I just think, I, I don't know if I can prove this, but I feel like I've observed this. I think eventually we make the Bible a weapon for our own agenda. And that agenda seems to never get around to building houses for people. And that seems to me to be the thing we should be worried about. Uh... What kind of time are we looking at? All right, I've got like we're thirty minutes in. Yeah, you okay to go for a little? Okay, okay. I want I want to talk about the curse just for a second before we sort of leave this because obviously this is a big piece of of the question. Um, so one of the things that I would say about the Bible, you probably in fact. Mine has it, very, very Christianized version of it. It says, the fall. That's <laughs> very, very big bold letters, the fall. And then I think it even says the curse somewhere. But, you know, we get in these headings, the Bible doesn't say the fall. Right? It doesn't say the fall. It doesn't say anything like that. It's just telling the story. And as it tells the story, of course, they weren't supposed to eat from the tree. The serpent is pictured here as a negative figure who has tricked them into doing something wrong. And... I know that feels very childhood either. Anybody else get tricked into doing something when you were a kid? That you, oh man, I got, I got in trouble for that one. Um, so anyway, uh, there the comes the point where God finds them and he begins the curse. And I want to look at that for just a second because there's some significant things going on here. The Lord says to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, because you have tricked, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, her offspring. She will bruise your head and you will bruise her heel. So what is happening here? This, uh, this eventually gets kind of moved into Christian theology um, as a description of Jesus. Like G the serpent reaches out to bite Jesus and kills Jesus. Jesus crushes it. So this, uh, this eventually gets by Christian interpreters gets kind of reimagined in the genre and language of their day to make meaning and understanding of their time and their lives. But right here, we have what is called an etiology. An etiology is a description of why things exist the way they do. Why are we here? Why do snakes bite us? Why do women have pain in childbirth? Why do I have to go to work? Can I get a witness? <laughs> right? That's what's happening in this curse, the curse that is being laid. So what happened? And in fact, even that, that might be a bad way of putting it because um, the curse is not... That's, that's a word that's not used here. God simply sort of says, this is what's going to happen to you. Because you've done this, you will now become the beast that crawls on the ground. And there is going to be animalistic enmity between you and humans. This does not reach its culmination until after the flood. So instead of thinking of this as a fall, as a fall and like everything else that collapses after that, you should, I think, think of Genesis 1 through 11 rather as a series of humanistic rebellions. A series of times that humans say, ah, I've got something better in mind. You see this here. You see this again in the story of Noah. At the end of the story of Noah, God says, I'm going to put the fear. Animals are going to fear you now. They're going to flee from you. And you will actually be held responsible. We never talk about this. You will be held responsible for the blood of the animals you shed. That's, that's in your Bible. I, I don't ever hear anybody talking about that in our, our farm industrial complex we have and what we do to animals, you know, at, at, in, in terms of that. that. That's very true in this text in Genesis 9 that we are going to be held accountable for that. So you, you, you have this kind of breakdown of relationship between humans and animals. Like what has happened is the world is broken. And that brokenness is not just between you and Jesus and the and the, 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 the dirty thoughts that you had or the angry thoughts that you had or the thing that you said that you shouldn't have said or watched that you shouldn't have watched, any of that. What we have here is a breakdown of an order. And that breakdown begins with humans and animals. And then, it sa then he says this uh, to the woman in verse um, 16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing as you bring forth children. And this, this actually is a really... Poorly translated. It says, your desire shall be for your husband and she, he shall rule over you. Horrible translation. That is a conservative Christian translation um, that obfuscates the actuality of the text. Which is simply to say that one of us in our relationship is physically larger and stronger. Not true in every relationship, but most relationships, uh, in marriage relationships, you have that situation. In fact... You have that situation across the board where the strong will impose their will on, on those who are less strong or in a position of, of less authority or economic position, whatever it is. The strong will oppress the weak. And so what he is saying here, I would argue, is a reflection of the world as we see it. Chances are, are much stronger that the husband will abuse 
the way, it, in fact, somebody said, you said something very sad to me, and I actually have observed it my whole or very sad tonight, when you said, women feel like they have to defend themselves to go out and to do something fun. I watched that my whole life. My, my mom was always never buying clothes for herself, never taking care of herself, never going out and having a good time. And so um, I, I, I think you see some of just the effects of the fall. I think that's what it's saying. The effect of the fall is this, that those who have freedom and strength will embrace their freedom and strength, and they will stick it to the people below them if possible. And as you read Genesis, it's really tough on women. It's very tough on, on women in patriarchal societies. I don't think God is saying, this is great, we should do this. I think God is saying, this is the reality of what is happening. If you have removed me from the picture and recognize that I am bringing power about that level playing field where weak and strong are all at the same level because we're all children of God, right? all of that is going away and instead there is an oppressive regime. And so again, you see this, uh, this in the next, in verse 17, it goes a little further. Then he looks at Adam and says, because you listened to your wife, I'm going to make the ground cursed, um, curses the ground because of you. The, uh, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And so what's being described here is, is the difficulty. Before this, they lived in a garden, remember that? And they would just take from the trees. Now he's got to till the ground. Now he's got to make the ground give forth. And I don't know if you've ever tried to grow anything, but it's not easy. It's not easy. You gotta fight the bugs, you gotta fight the thistles, you gotta fight the pests, you gotta do all that stuff. Now he's in a position, humans are in a position of trying to figure out how to deal with this world that is no longer like giving them what they, easily giving them what they need. Paul reflects on this actually in one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, I think in Romans chapter eight, is one of my, but I think the most beautiful passages. He says in Romans chapter eight that the whole of creation is groaning as a woman in labor, waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Because Paul is saying that when Jesus comes and the children of God are revealed and really begin to take hold of the world and the kingdom of God, as, as God is imagining the world, uh, these, the, the, the world, the earth itself, creation itself is, is looking for liberation as well. That everyone is suffering, even the planet is suffering. And, uh, and so all of us, all of, all of reality, I guess, so these, these relationships between men and women, relationships between women and, and their own bodies in terms of childbirth, our relationship to the ground, the, our relationship to animals, all of these things are beginning to break down. And because, because of the rebellion that we have against, against God in some ways. And so um, one of the things I want to talk about with that curse and the reason why I think it's so interesting because uh, in it there is a very uh, visible hierarchy of male and female. And some of our conservative friends and brothers and sisters like to point that out and say that this is the way it should be. Like this is God demonstrating the world as it is and how, how it has to be now. And yet in Galatians, Paul contradicts that directly, right? He says that Jesus was the curse. He went to the cursed tree, he accepted the curse, he came down, and he did not, or he pronounced us curseless. We are now blessed. We're now the children of God. In fact, Paul says in that text, he says, There is now, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. That Christ's specific come was to remove 
piece by piece, I suppose, the effects of this, this, this fall, what we see happening here. Jesus comes and he begins to unlock and undo these things that are happening by teaching us to care about the world around us, by declaring the year of Jubilee when we begin to let the earth you'll breathe, when we begin to take seriously our, our responsibility to creation and to one another, when we begin to think creatively about work and, and life together, Jesus is undoing these things. And that's the grand declaration of Paul in the New Testament, that the curse is being undone. These effects are being loosed. And we see this visibly when we do things like our friend just said, rejecting the power structure of patriarchy, for instance. Rejecting our um, callousness, perhaps, to the natural world, to animals and to things that are out there. We are beginning to undo those things. And so as I so kind of to wrap all of these thoughts up, I know I said a lot of things tonight. What I hope that you take away from it is this. I hope that you take away from it that, that the ancient people were, were, were living in the context of their day. They were writing in the style of their day. Much like if I sat down and write, I write in my day. Uh, they were doing so to make meaning of the world around them. And they were making important, meaningful contributions, talking about who God is and what God is about. That when we come to recognize this, we will not make the mistake of mixing meaning with genre, so we won't get caught up in fighting the wrong kind of fights. And we will allow the Bible to just be, and if we can allow the Bible to just be, I think you'll find that you can allow a lot of other things to just be as well. As we meditated tonight, allowing things to just be as they are. And uh, one of the things that we can let go to is some of the things that we see within that curse that we're hanging on to. For example, patriarchy. We can also let go of some of these myths that we have believed that are not true about serpents and satans and boogeymen coming to steal your soul. Right? God is not coming for us in that way. God is seeking to redeem God is seeking to liberate. God is seeking to empower. And that's what Edison Chapel is about as well. And so I think, I think again, I think that's what's happening in these texts. These were all my opinions. They are not endorsed by any member living or dead of this congregation. So please feel free to talk with me more about it afterwards if I said anything. It made you uncomfortable or made you um, upset. I remember saying things about hearing uh, my first college class. Uh, I had a friend. Uh, John Robinson, remember John, he was sitting up front, and I remember a professor said, Moses didn't write the Old Testament, and John held on to his seat for dear life, right? because he had just been, all he had ever known was contradicted, and, uh, and he was a champion, and so he, was, he, he dealt with it just fine, but if I've said something that you feel like impacts or affects your faith in a negative way, please come and talk to me about it, because I guarantee you that it, it, it shouldn't, that you should find freedom in letting the Bible be what the Bible is.